0: If you brought a Bible today, please open it up to the book of Mark. Uh, Today is an exciting day for me because I've been planning to study the book of Mark with you for probably a year now. Uh, A year ago, I was just reading through the Gospels, and as I'm reading through Mark, I just found myself kind of itching to teach it to you, to to, like spend some time to study it and going through it with you. Because it dawned on me, we talk so much about being a Jesus-centered church and and encouraging you to live Jesus-centered lives, but we should go and study Jesus. I mean, Riverwood is going to turn six years old here in a month, and we've never studied an entire book of, of one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, we, uh, I think probably about three years ago, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've also uh, gone, we studied uh, John 1 uh, another time. We've, we've, you know, looked at different parables, different stories, uh, examples of Jesus. But We've never studied an entire book, and I think it's, it's time. it's actually past time. We should have done this a couple years ago because if we really are going to be those Jesus-centered people, we need to look at at Jesus. Now, I am going to give you fair warning. Uh, We're going to study the book of Mark not only for the remainder of this year. We're also probably going to study the book of Mark all through next year. And you're probably wondering how in the world is Aaron going to spend two years on 16 chapters? Well, because we're actually going to just study it. We're not just going to skim uh, across it. My son found out that we were going to take two years and he's like, oh my goodness, dad. I think he's already like set in for boredom. Trust me, you're not going to be bored with this book because as we're going to study through it, you're going to see Jesus just moving through it. And he is a hard worker. We're actually going to talk about that here in just uh, a little bit. Also, the reason it's going to take us a couple of years is we are going to take pauses. Uh, For instance, this year when I'm on sabbatical, uh, we've decided uh, that the elders and our guest teachers are each going to pick a different psalm and uh, teach through it. And so we're going to do the Psalms this summer. Uh, this fall, we're going to do a series just on Riverwood's Pathway of how Gather, Grow, Give, Go can help you in your spiritual journey. And then this uh, December, uh, Advent season, we'll do another uh, Advent series, uh, prepare our, pre- preparing our hearts for Christmas. Um, and next year will be kind of similar. So it's not going to be a uh, hundred some weeks of just Mark. We will have some pauses in there. But this book is worth us really stopping and studying because it really gives us a crystal clear picture of Jesus. It helps us see just who he was in his person, and also it helps us discover what was his purpose. And my hope is that if you're a Jesus follower, that this book will just help you fall all the more in love with Jesus. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus yet, that this book will make you want to follow Jesus, because you'll just see how amazing he actually is. So as we get ready to dive into it, uh, let me pray, and then we're going to look at some background. Uh, So Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we get to come and study this amazing book and look at your amazing son, Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray you just overwhelm us with with who he is. Um, many of us were familiar with these stories that we're going to read. Uh, we, we know uh, about Jesus. God, would you help us to see him afresh so that you just awaken something within us so that we can be that blessing out in the world that you call us to be. So God, help us to beginning today. And for many uh, next uh, weeks and months, just really capture uh, an image of Jesus that excites us and motivates us to go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Anytime you get ready to uh, dig into a book of the bible i really highly recommend that you find ways to study the background uh just ask yourself some questions basically the who what why where and 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 those sort of questions you don't have to necessarily ask how did they write it it was probably with like some sort of parchment and, and pen but it's worth us asking the other things all right who who wrote this all right so big surprise the who is mark um actually he's known as john mark uh we meet john mark in acts chapter 12 It turns out that John Mark partnered up with Paul and Barnabas. He went on one of their uh, trips, uh, the first missionary trip. However, we discover in chapter 13 that John Mark left to go to Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say right there in chapter 13 why he left. Uh, You know, you could initially read it and think, oh, maybe he, you know, they sent him on a special mission. Maybe he was going to collect an offering. Who knows why he went? But we find out over in chapter 15. It turns out that John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas just left. Couldn't, couldn't handle it because in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are having a conversation. Paul says, Hey, Barney, what, what do you think about us hopping on a ship and going and visiting all the churches we planted just to see how they're doing and encourage them. And Barnabas looks at Paul and goes, Paulie, that's a great idea. Let's do it. But let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no way. I'm not taking that guy. He abandoned us. And Barnabas is like, Oh, come on, Paul. He needs a second chance. Let's give him a try. Ends up being such an argument, the two of them split apart and go separate directions. Paul grabs Silas and they take off to go plant more churches. That becomes Paul's second missionary journey. And Barnabas takes John Mark and all we know is that they headed out. That's where the story in, in the book of Acts kind of ends. I can't help but wonder, what would have happened if Paul won that argument? Like if Barnabas kind of caved in and said, all right, whatever you want, Paul, and they don't take him. I kind of wonder, do we even end up with the gospel of Mark? Maybe we do, but I just love that Barnabas cared so much about John Mark. And he says, yeah, I know he abandoned us. He was unreliable, but you know what? He still matters to God. So therefore he matters to me. And so let's take him along and just continue to disciple him. But it wasn't just Barnabas that discipled. It was also another apostle, Peter in first Peter chapter five, we learn that John Mark was considered like a son to Peter. Peter became his mentor. And it's kind of not surprising because in the book of Mark, you actually see Peter mentioned more than in Matthew, Luke, or John. Many scholars believe that this book, the gospel of Mark, is actually the eyewitness account of Peter. When the canon was kind of being set, people were determine whether or not a book should be allowed into the Bible— One of the things was that either needed to be written by an apostle, like Paul, or it needed to be written by someone who was very closely associated. And for Mark, that was Peter. And so as we read through this, we're going to discover that this is kind of Peter's firsthand account, but God used Mark to pin it. So that's a little bit of the who. All right, now next, the what. What is it that he wrote? Well, he tells us right in the very first verse, Mark 1, 1. He says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If if you were to go and read in the book of Luke, you would see uh, Luke kind of uh, start off. Um, uh, you know, just he kind of rambles a little bit. Not not Mark. Mark just jumps in right away. This is what I'm doing. I am writing the um, gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. It's funny in the book of Mark. Mark rarely gives any sort of commentary. Uh, If you read in Matthew, Luke, or John, especially John, you'll notice that there'll be these like side comments. It's like them giving their their input and feedback or, or, you know, kind of putting themselves into the story, but not with Mark. Maybe that's because Mark wasn't actually there. This is Peter's account and he's just recording it. But I also think it was purposeful on, on his part. I think Mark is trying to not put commentary in because he wants his readers to figure this out for themselves. In fact, the very end of the book of Mark ends really, really abruptly. Oftentimes you'll see your translation might have some sort of note saying, well, there's also this ending in, in some manuscripts. There's, there's this ending, you know, a little shorter. But the original manuscripts, the best we know is that these women go out to the tomb to, to uh, take these spices after Jesus died away, uh, died on the cross. And they would show up at the tomb and he's gone, and it says that they were so fearful they told no one. And it just ends right there. Some people, it really bothers them that it ends like that. Like, why didn't he talk about the resurrection more? Why didn't he talk? I can't help but think that Mark did that intentionally because he wanted people to make their own decision. It's like he said in the very beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what I believe. Now, I'm going to lay out my entire case. I'm going to tell you all of these stories about how awesome Jesus is, but you're going to have to make your own decision. And so I think that's kind of the what he wrote. Now, where did he write this? Well, all of these, um, first of all, we believe he wrote it in Rome. I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit, but the stories that we read all take place within Israel, the Palestinian region. Uh, But one thing I want to point out is that oftentimes you will notice through the book of Mark that you'll see Jesus do ministry to Jewish people And then he will go and do this almost the same thing towards Gentiles. And sometimes it seems like Jesus is just jumping across the Lake of Galilee. Hey, let's do some ministry here. Let's do some teaching. All right, we're going to go over here and we're going to do the same thing. And then we'll go back and then back and forth. It's kind of interesting to me that Mark draws out this ministry to these Gentiles. I can't help but wonder if the effect of Peter upon Mark influenced this. Because we see in Acts chapter 10 that Peter is the first apostle called to bring the gospel to Gentiles. Now we learn in Galatians uh, 3 that Paul actually had to uh, um, kind of confront Peter. Because Peter actually, after doing ministry to Gentiles, began to kind of pull away. A- a- and he, he kind of gets called uh, on it. I-, I think though, over time, Peter was like, yeah, God brought the gospel not just to us Jews. It's also for Gentiles. And so we need to bring the gospel to them as well. And so we notice Mark kind of bring that out in his book, right. And then when was this uh, book written? Well, most scholars believe it was somewhere between 63 and 70 AD. Now, the more liberal the, the scholar is, the, the later they put the date. I mean, there's some that's trying to say it was like in the 90s. The more conservative they are, the earlier they try to put the date, But the majority seem to think somewhere around 63 to 70 AD. Now, it's understood that Peter died somewhere around 64, 65 AD. Some scholars believe that Mark actually rushed and hung out with Peter as he's in prison shortly before he's executed, and he's trying to capture as much as he can. That's why this book moves at really a rapid pace. We're going to talk about that in a moment as well. Others believe that maybe it was after Peter died, and Mark realizes, man, Peter used to tell all these stories. We, We need to capture this and write this down. The best we we can tell is that it was somewhere between 63 and uh, 70 AD. But many scholars also believe that Mark was the first gospel written. uh, That Matthew and Luke kind of leaned on Mark. Uh, In fact, about 90% of Mark can be found in Matthew. And about 40% of Mark can be found over in Luke. And uh, it really bothers some people when they think that, you know, this book was written about 30 years after the events of Jesus. And I kind of look at it and think, well, you know what? If Luke, who was really, really a doctor in the background, very detail-oriented in all of his research, if he could rely on Mark, I'm pretty sure we could trust in Mark. And plus, there were people still around that were there at the time of the events that he's writing about. And so if he was lying, if he was adding legend to, you know, putting all these myths in there, there were people around who could have discounted it. And the whole thing, I think, just would have crumbled. There were other supposed gospels that had been spread And that's what happened to them, but not Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they continue to last through time and the church continued to rely upon them because these eyewitness accounts seemed accurate. As crazy as some of these stories sound, it turns out they were actually true. And so that's why I think even though it's 30 years after, we can still rely on it. All right, so last question, probably the most important, why? Why did he write this uh, book? If you go into the uh, book of Luke, you, you notice Luke share, here's why I, I wrote this. If you, at the, towards the end of John, you notice a similar thing. Here's why I wrote this. Mark doesn't do that. He doesn't pause and say, here's why I'm writing this to you. So I have to kind of throw out a theory, a, a hypothesis. And my hypothesis is that the reason Mark wrote this is because Jesus is awesome. Have you ever hung out with a, an elderly person who's just full of stories? Maybe it was one of your grandparents, uh, maybe it was a, a neighbor, uh, a friend, or, 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 you know, maybe you volunteered at a senior citizen center and, and you're just hanging out with them. And all of a sudden they'd say, oh, I remember. And they would launch into some story. And as you listen, I mean, it just captures your attention. And when this just keeps happening over and over and over, you start to think to yourself, man, we got to, we got to write this down. This should be put into a book. I can't help but think that's what happened with Mark. That the more he hung out with Peter and heard Peter say, Huh, ever told you guys the story about Jesus? And then he'd launch into another story. And over time, maybe because Peter passed away or maybe he knows that he's about to pass away, Mark thinks to himself, We've got to capture this. We're going to lose Peter and all of his stories. We've got to get this recorded because Jesus is awesome. But I think there's a second reason that he wrote this. I think he wrote this gospel to help the Romans understand who jesus was and realize that jesus was awesome because when you start comparing the book of mark to matthew or luke you notice that mark's just a little kind of rougher it's not as refined in its in its language well that's because that's more of what would appeal to the romans also you notice in mark that there are certain words that are in aramaic matthew and luke who wrote more towards a jewish audience They didn't need to translate that because their Hebrew background of the Jews would allow them to know this Aramaic, not the Romans. They spoke Greek. And so Mark transliterates some of these words over into Greek to make it more understood. Also, there's occasionally times in Mark where Mark actually pauses and says, oh, hey, that's a Jewish thing. Let me explain. And he takes a moment to explain it out, whereas Matthew and Luke don't need to do that as much because their audience was already Jewish But then also, we notice kind of the pace that Mark moves at. I alluded to this earlier. You'll notice in the book of Mark, the word immediately, several times. The the, uh, Romans really appreciated hard work. They they liked that kind of pace. They would have been great Americans. And, And by looking at Jesus and seeing that Jesus was the hardest worker of anyone, it would have impressed the Romans and would have drawn them to him. And and so, while I think one of his reasons for writing this book is because, yeah, just frankly, Jesus is awesome, and these stories needed captured, I I also think that he really desired to see the Romans understand who Jesus is. And so, that's kind of the background. Let's jump in uh, here. Let's read uh, Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold... Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You ever met someone and within moments you feel like you know them. And maybe it's because they gave you a really good first impression and you just feel like you suddenly just met your best friend. Or maybe it's because they gave you a really bad impression and you knew someone else like that. So you just immediately had a sense of you knew how they were going to act, the kind of things that they would say. It didn't take you long to have a sense of, I, I, I really get this person. We kind of get that with Mark here in the beginning. Mark just moves at a really rapid pace. We kind of get a sense right away. Because in Matthew and Luke, what takes them four chapters mark condenses all down here into one chapter i he just moves after he's in his initial sentence suddenly he's off to the old testament then he's introducing us to a character i mean it's just bam 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 he wastes no time at all uh he, the first thing he wants to do is he just wants to uh, uh start things uh right off right away i i remember uh Just over December, I was reading a fiction book. My daughter had highly recommended it. Um, I had read some other books by this author, uh, Brandon Sanderson, and really enjoyed them. So I was excited to read this book. And this book is like a thousand pages. I mean, it's super, super thick. And so I'm I'm starting in it, and I, I open it up, and the prologue starts off, and I meet these two characters. And it's right after this big bloody battle. And so it's just engrossing, grabs you right in. It's a fantasy novel. And so I I start reading it and I get to the end and I turn the page and it says, chapter one, 4,500 years later. I kind of stopped like, what? Like why that prologue? I was a little confused. So uh, anyway, all right, we'll start chapter one. And I meet this character and he ends up getting into this battle and this fight. And it's really engrossing. And all of a sudden that chapter ends and chapter two says seven years later. And introduces me to a completely different character. And so by chapter 3, I'm really frustrated. Like, I'm sitting there yelling at the book, like, who's the hero? Like, come on, who should I be rooting for here? It was really, really frustrating. Mark is the exact opposite. Mark is not writing a fantasy novel. He is sharing true stories. And he also doesn't start you off and then, oh, let me jump to this character. Oh, let me jump to this character. No, he starts right off. Hey, here's who this is all about. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you grew up in church, you, this sort of sentence, I mean, this just blows right by you. I mean, yeah, you've heard of Jesus Christ. Uh, some people actually use it as a curse word. He's considered the son of God. Yeah, 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 we've, we've heard this. Just move on. But to his Roman readers, I think this would have stuck out. Because the Greek for Christ was Christos. And it meant anointed. But the Jews, when they talk about Christos, their word was Messiah. This anointed, it had kind of these divine overtones. To the Romans, not so much. It meant an anointed royal figure, kind of like a king. And so really what he's saying there is this is the beginning of the gospel of King Jesus. But so that they wouldn't get confused and think that "Ah, this is just another king, he, he distinguishes him and calls him the son of God. In other words, this is not just a king. This is the king. And he doesn't just rule over an empire like the Roman Empire. He rules over the entire universe. There is no one else like him. This is the power of Mark. In one short sentence, he grabs both the humanity of Jesus and the divinity. And he helps us see this guy you want to pay attention to. You want to get to know him. So he, he lays out, hey, this is my case. This, what I'm about to give you is the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And like a good lawyer, he begins to build his case. In fact, he's about ready to call someone to the witness stand. But so that we know that this expert is someone we need to listen to, he wants to give a little bit of background. And to do so, he jumps to the Old Testament. Verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, maybe your translation has in there, instead of um, it comes from the uh, prophet Isaiah, yours just says this is from the prophets. Well, that's because it's both. It turns out that there in verse 2, the the, uh, first half there, that part is actually from Malachi 3.1. The portion from Isaiah is chapter, is verse 3 there, and it's from Isaiah 40 verse three. Now, this bothers some people. Which was it in the original manuscripts? Did he say this was from Isaiah? If it was from Isaiah, then why is he quoting Malachi? But if he really wrote the prophets, then why do some translations like the ESV have Isaiah? And so some people try to use this as an excuse of, oh, see, this is why this book isn't really from God. This is just a human product. You know, it's been, it's tainted. It's been, uh, uh tempered. Uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, mishandled. You can't really rely on it. But actually, I look at it and say, you know what? This shouldn't actually bother us. This should actually awe us. Because you see, first, to Mark's audience, this wouldn't have bugged them a bit. If it really was from Isaiah, well, the fact that he quotes Isaiah wouldn't bother them a bit that he grabbed Malachi. And if he really wrote the prophets, then, hey, he quotes from Malachi and Isaiah. But for us, we should look at it and realize this is from two different prophets, One who lived 200 years before the other, and yet God said the same thing through them. Saying, I'm sending my Messiah. I'm sending myself. I'm coming. And to get ready for that, I'm going to prepare the way through a messenger. There's going to be one who's coming who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. This should actually awe us that these two different prophets said the same thing, and they both point to one person. And he gives Mark gives us that background to then call up to the witness stand, John the Baptist. We meet John in, in uh, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. I just pretend for a moment that this really is a courtroom. Uh, The lawyer, Mark, stands up, says, Your Honor, I'd like to call now John the Baptist. And John begins to walk up, and Mark gives the background. Here's why we should listen to this guy. He was prophesied about, you know, 600 years before he ever arrived. So he starts walking up, and I think the whole courtroom would kind of gasp. Because he'd be walking up there, snacking on some locusts, some bugs, you know, dipping his hand into some honey, hair just kind of frazzled because he lives out in the wilderness. People are like, whoa, what's that smell? And he walks up and then you see his garments. He's got this camel hair and it's tied around with a leather strap. And this just makes people like, what is going on? But any Jews that would be in the courtroom would look at John and realize what Mark is doing. Because those things would identify him as Elijah. In Second Kings 1.8, Elijah is described as wearing this garment of hair with a leather belt around. Zion, you want to put that up? All right. So he, this is how he's described. Well, as soon as Mark describes John this way, any Jew that's reading this realize, whoa, wait, this is actually about Elijah, which would make sense because in Malachi... We're coming back to it. We looked at three one earlier. Now we're at Malachi 4, verse 5. He writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so any Jewish reader would look at this and realize, Whoa, I see what Mark's doing. He's setting John the Baptist up as this true expert on Jesus. He's the one who's supposed to come and prepare the way for the Lord. He is Elijah. And Jesus himself in Matthew 11 confirms this. He says, if you can accept it, John is the Elijah to come. So in other words, now John's on the witness stand. And Mark has called him because he knows John's going to help make his case that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. So he questions him. All right, John, what would you like to say for yourself? And this is verses seven and eight. And he, John preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see what John's doing? He's doing the exact same thing that Mark did to start off his gospel. Mark starts it off. This is the gospel... ...of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So now my first witness, John, what would you like to say about Jesus? Are you going to convict him as the Son of God? John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how awesome and amazing Jesus is. Uh, a few years ago, there was a Christian leader who uh, wrote a book... ...and then put together, kind of designed this curriculum, and online course, if you will... All designed to help Christian leaders, like pastors, uh, others, to build a platform. Meaning, not just a stage, but to build a platform for which they can speak. Now, the heart was in the right place. Use your platform to help draw people to Jesus. But the way to go about doing it was to start a blog. Was to put together an email list. To get people to subscribe. And as you amass this big uh, tribe of people, you now have a platform. Hopefully to point them towards Jesus, but also... It's to hawk your products. If you write a book, you can then sell it and you'd have a better seller. You can put together these online courses and other people will subscribe to them. You build yourself this platform and, hey, you'll get rich. I think John the Baptist would hear that and go, bah, nah, it's waste. Uh, that's a waste. Because if you think about it, John had a platform. It says that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem were coming out. They're, they want to see this crazy dude. They want to hear him preach and then they're cut to the heart and they want to get baptized. He has influence. And what does he do with that influence? Does he hawk holy water? Does he try and sell salvation sandals? Does he try and put out a new line of camel hair robes? No. The people gather and what does he do? There's another one coming who's greater than I am. Pay attention to him. There's a story in John chapter three where the, uh, John has this following of people. He's got kind of some disciples. People are all coming out to see him. And then Jesus goes public with his ministry. And suddenly Jesus and his disciples begin to baptize. And everyone starts to go to hear him. Because, I mean, they, they've seen the crazy dude, but now there's someone new along. And this guy, he does miracles. We, we've already heard, like, he's turned water into wine. He, he's, you know, helped uh, heal people. Like, he does these amazing things we want to go check this guy out. And so they start leaving John the Baptist. So some other people approach John and they say, hey, did you hear? Jesus' disciples are starting to baptize people. Everyone's going to him. How does that make you feel? And John's response in John 3.30 was, he must increase, I must decrease. You see, John's entire purpose, his entire mission was to prepare the way for Jesus And when people were ready to now follow jesus john went my job's done i've done what i was sent to do yes and he felt like he won today i want you to be a little bit like john normally i'm trying to tell you to be like jesus hey you're probably sick of me saying it but i really believe that god wants you to love like jesus loved and live like jesus lived but today what i want to do is i want to help you see that in order for you to be like jesus you need to be a little bit like John. And there's two things that John does that I would love to see you do yourself. The first thing is that you are to be Jesus-centered. In other words, make everything about you all about Jesus. I mean, just like Mark starts off, hey, here's what I'm about. Here's what my book is about. It's about Jesus. And just like John in his entire life, What's your, what are you about, John? Jesus. I'm here to prepare the way for him. It's all about Jesus. In America, it is so easy for us to be Jesus-friendly, uh, you know, to be open to Jesus. But I don't think God has called you to just be sort of Jesus-light. I think he's called you to be Jesus-centered. That everything about you belongs to god Jesus came to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And by doing so, he in a sense purchased us away from sin so that we could belong once again to God and he could begin to restore that image of himself within us. So everything that we are belongs to him. And if God were to call us into wilderness to wear camel hair clothing, then we'd do it. Because it's all about Jesus. So the first thing I think we should take away from John is that we're to be Jesus centered. The second thing I want to encourage you is that if you are a Jesus follower yourself, that you are to prepare the way for someone else. We uh, began the year 2020 with the 21 days of prayer. And during that, I was encouraging you that this year, would you just identify one person in your life who does not know Jesus? It might be a family member, could be a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, someone that you care about. And I was encouraging you, just simply begin to pray for them. Right? That's one way to prepare the way. Just start praying for them. Pray for them weekly. In fact, I would encourage you, pray for them daily. Just set a daily alarm on your phone or on your watch to remind you to pray for your friend. Pray that God would open their eyes. Just pray. And that's one way that you end up preparing the way for them to find Jesus. But also, I want to encourage you, find ways to show them that you care. They are not a project. They are a person. So find ways to to serve them. Find ways to just sit and listen to them. Invite them. Just hang out together. They're a human being. Just love them. Care for them. But then ultimately what you long for, what you want to see happen, is God just open avenues for you to share the gospel. As you just share about your faith, as you just share about Jesus, you're helping now prepare the way for them to find Jesus, follow him. So really what I'm encouraging you to do is just prayer, care, share for your one. And you never know what God will do. Maybe he will open their eyes. They will be transformed. And they too will one day say their life is all about Jesus Christ, the son of God. That they're not just following another king. They're following the one true king. That suddenly they themselves become Jesus centered. And one day they might come to the place where they will say, he must increase and I must decrease. But for us to see that for our one, it means we ourselves need to be Jesus-centered and then pray that God would let us prepare the way for them to find Jesus and follow him. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. And that help us to be Jesus-centered people who are you use to prepare the way for others. Uh, Lord, I pray right now for anyone that might be here that does not know you. That today would be their spiritual birthday. That you would change their heart, you'd open their minds, and that they would see that Jesus is incredible. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's one that we're not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. God, as you lead those people to that place, would you just help them to confess their sin, to surrender their life, and to begin this journey of putting you first. And God, I pray for all of us here that not just through the, the whole entire book of Mark, but that even today, you would just help us to fall more in love with Jesus. And we would be a little bit like John the Baptist, that we would realize that the reason you put us on this earth was to make our lives all about you. Because that's what gives you the greatest glory. And it's also what allows us to do what you called us to do. So Father, help us to be Jesus-centered people. Help us to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived so that we can go and be the blessing you've called us to. And God, I pray that you would use us to help our one find you, that you would use us, and in this calendar year, in 2020, we would see all sorts of people bow their knee before the king to confess their sin and declare Jesus is Lord, the Son of God. So, Father, I pray that you would do these work, this work in us as well as through us for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.